We're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 17. Uh, Ryan read over uh, verses 9 to 14 already, but let's read it again and make our way down through verse 17 in our reading. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless, mightily, powerfully bless this morning, our time in your presence, in your word. Would you pour out on us your Holy Spirit? May each one here be filled so that we might take the word that you say to us to heart. And I pray, Father, that we would examine ourselves and not only would our talk line up with your word, but I pray that our hearts would as well. May it be to your honor and glory. Everything that happens here, the words spoken, the thoughts that we mull over, all of it, Father, may it be to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We come in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 17, to two of Jesus' more familiar, more famous paragraphs. The first paragraph that we're going to be looking at and spending most of our time on in verses 9 to 14 is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who are both praying in the temple, but praying very different prayers and coming, of course, from completely different trust. In the second paragraph, which we'll cover just briefly, Jesus commends to us the faith of a child or a childlike faith. Let me summarize the two paragraphs together, which are clearly so naturally paired together. The summary is, in order to be justified and to enter the kingdom of God, you need the humble faith that God requires. In order to be justified and to enter God's kingdom, you need the faith that God requires. Now these two paragraphs are Quite easy, wouldn't you agree, to understand? There's nothing very complicated about this doctrine, and it's one of the first lessons that we learn as Christians. After there is one God and we are made in His image, we quickly learn that we have sinned, but God has provided a remedy for us in Christ, and the only way that we can be safe with God, reconciled to Him, is to put all of our trust 
in Christ. Abandon all of our self-hope, self-righteousness, and put our faith in Jesus Christ. So if you were tested this morning on which one of these characters was in the right, the right answer would be easily on your lips. I mean automatically. You wouldn't have to give it a second thought. It's the tax collector, clearly. He's the one who's in the right. He is the one who goes home right with God. But there is a world of difference between having the right answer on our lips and having the reality of that in our hearts. And so more than just a quick test, we need a a more thorough examination. And you might think, well, we always do this. I've done this so many times, I don't need to do it again. But the Bible commands us, uh, make your calling and your election sure. Test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So that's what we need to do. When um, you go into the doctor's exam room and he or she gets there like 45 minutes later, you know how that is, Um, the first question that they're going to ask you is, so tell me how you're feeling. How do you feel? They want to know the symptoms. And from your symptoms, they're going to eliminate a bunch of things. And, you know... Uh, be able to make some educated, hopefully, educated guesses on what's going on with you. And then they'll run their, you know, the appropriate tests, come back with their diagnosis and the prescribed remedy. The first question again, though, is how do you feel? And that leads to a diagnosis of your health and hopefully a return to health and to well-being. Jesus' question is not how do you feel? But to diagnose our spiritual health, our physician is asking, how do you feel about others? How do you treat others? That's his question. Because that is symptomatic of what is going on in our hearts. Let's look at uh, verse 9 again. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The first thing is the disease. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The second thing is the symptom of that. They treated others with contempt. Trusting in yourself that you are righteous is the terrible sickness And treating others with contempt is the telltale sign that you have that horrible disease of self-righteousness, which, if it does not get cured, is a fatal disease. How do you feel, is not the physician's question, but how do you feel about others? So let's think about this. Do you look down on the world? How do you regard the sinners of this world? Do you think, I would never do that? I would never become what they are. How could they? When we have the world in our prayers, are we praying about them more or for them? Lord, let their influence die. That would be more praying about them. If that is our, we want that. We want the world's influence to, you know, to quit, obviously. But isn't it to quit by their repentance, by their coming to Jesus, their salvation? Are we praying more about them or are we praying for them? 
Do you think that you are better than them? Not how you feel, but how you feel toward others is the sign of your own spiritual health. Let us uh, consider this parable of Jesus. Let's uh, listen in. He's going to take that, that doctrine and he's going to put some flesh on its bones. Verse 10. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. You know, all of Jesus' parables come with, with surprises and with twists. And we see this again in this unique parable to Luke. It's unique to him. That is, Matthew, Mark, and uh, John uh, don't record it. Um, but the first thing we have here is a, a non-surprise. The, the first non-surprise is that we have these two characters paired together, the Pharisee and the tax collector, because you see these two paired all over Luke's narrative. So we've seen that a lot already. And it's not that they're paired because they're buddy-buddy. They're not paired because they're two peas in a pod. They're paired together because they are extreme opposites. Polar opposites. Right? The Pharisee is the best of the best in the, the mind's eye of the people. And the tax collector is the opposite. He's the worst of the worst. The Pharisee, morally and doctrinally, has it all together. I mean, he has his doctrine much more straight than, say, the Sadducees, which they were way out in left field. But he has it all together. And he's universally respected amongst the people and envied for his spiritual advancement. The tax collector, on the other hand, we know this man's reputation I mean, we're not supposed to think IRS when we hear tax collector in the first century, in first century Israel. I mean, this man was consorting with the Roman Empire. He was filling up Rome's coffers at his neighbor's expense and lining his own pockets at his own neighbor's expense. And so this man is nothing but a traitor and a cheat. So everyone affirms, highly regards the Pharisee, And no one is more despised than the tax collector. So it's not a surprise to see them paired together in Jesus' parable. But we are surprised, well, it's not surprising again to see the the Pharisee in the temple. Here's our first big surprise, is that the tax collector is there too to pray. He's there to pray as well. And I think... Right away, Jesus' listeners would have been like, come on, tax collector in the temple to pray? He doesn't belong there. So this is how Jesus structures his parable. He says about the Pharisee in verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Let me ask a question about this. If this Pharisee is thanking God for where he is in life spiritually, isn't that a sign that he is trusting in God for where he is? If he's thanking God, isn't it a sign that he trusts in God? And a trick question. I mean, no. No, it's not a sign that he is trusting in God for where he is. It's no surprise that this man is starting off his prayer right, 
Outward religion is where the Pharisee excels. Outward religion is where the hypocrite excels. So addressing God and thanking God is simply fulfilling the rules. The Pharisee's issue, one of them, is that he speaks better than what he believes, which is always the case with the self-righteous. They speak better than what they believe. And so by thanking God, he says it right, but he doesn't really believe it. The self-righteous have no trouble at all getting their talk to line up with God. It's their hearts that are far from Him. That's exactly what Jesus condemned in the self-righteous. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. The truth is that the Pharisees' thanksgiving to God is just this, it's a passing glance at God. That's all it is. What is he really contemplating? Or who is he really contemplating? Others. That's who he's really contemplating. And so we see that this man is so busy comparing himself with others that for the life of you and me, we could never convince him that his prayer is not to God but to himself. That it's actually against God and he's exalting himself. He is so busy comparing himself with others. He looks at what others do and he revels in the fact that he doesn't do like them. And he knows what others don't do. That's the second part of it's where he concludes in his prayer. He knows what others don't do and revels in the fact that he gets it done and above and beyond. Talk about going the second mile. It was only required of the people of Israel that they fast once in the year on the Day of of Atonement. This man was fasting twice a week. So he's reveling in the fact that he gets it done and goes above and beyond. Do you see that there is something filthy dripping off the Pharisees' prayers? Filthy. And I hate to admit it, but we have the seed of this sick wickedness in all of us. His prayer is is dripping with happiness for others' sins. It's oozing with it. He is happy about others' sins. I believe that if you are very honest with yourself and you are discerning in your self-evaluation according to the Scriptures, you will recognize the seeds of this in you too. You can feel it when the story comes out that uncovers someone's dark secret. Don't you have within it, even at the same time you may express whatever bad feeling, don't you have a good feeling within you? That they look so bad and next to them, you look really, really good. How do you look next to the adulterer? How do you look next to the spouse abuser? How do you look next to the weekend binger? The person who who ruins their lives because of addiction. How do we look next to them? How does your marriage look next to the 
failed marriage? How does our church look next to the other church that has split? How do we look next to them? It's very tempting to think, I look good next to them. To compare ourselves and feel some kind of vindication within us. And this is exactly what the Pharisee is is doing. This is nothing less than rejoicing in iniquity or rejoicing in wrongdoing, which is the very thing the Bible says love doesn't do. 1 Corinthians 13, love rejoices in no wrongdoing. Does not rejoice in wrongdoing. But you realize that this is the very thing that the self-righteous must do? They have to rejoice in iniquity. They have to be happy about somebody else's sin. Because that's how they get their vindication. That's how they get their justification. It's in contrast with others and how good they look next to them. So this Pharisee is building his spiritual house on the ruin of others' lives. And that's how the self-righteous get along. So look at this man. It says that he's standing apart there in verse 11. He stands by himself. He stands by himself literally, and he stands by himself symbolically. He detaches himself. It's like he doesn't want the filth of the world to defile him. He's got to keep himself prim and proper and ceremonially clean, keep everybody else away. He wishes he had a force field, a big dome around him, keep everybody out. So he's distancing himself. But I hope you can read... I hope you can read him and I hope you can read your own heart as far as we do compare to this man. Even as he's got this look of disgust on on his face, thank you that I'm not like the tax collector. He's glad the tax collector is there. Even as he stands apart from him, he's glad he is there. Because how else can he look good? if the tax collector or whoever else of the wicked is not there. As we're going to see in just a moment, the tax collector only has confession for God and only a humble plea for God. But the Pharisee only has praise for himself. So the tax collector, verse 13, he stands apart too, but for entirely different reasons. It's not others worthiness that's keeping him back. Understand that. It's not about the, uh, the, the worthiness of others that's making him keep his distance, but his own unworthiness. See, the Pharisee feels worthy in comparison with others. But for the tax collector, knowing and feeling every bit of his own unworthiness has nothing to do with others. It has nothing to do with the Pharisee. And it has everything to do with God. How can I draw near to God as I am in light of what I have done? How can I draw near to this holy God left to myself? There's no way unless God intervenes. I'm going to be kept at this distance from God. And worse, everything about this man's position His posture and his pleading expresses humility. He won't so much as lift his eyes to heaven. 
but just beats on his chest and he cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Comparing yourself to others in regard to worth and value and and righteousness and spirituality is always pride. It's always pride. Whether you're looking down on a person like the Pharisee looks down on the tax collector, or you're looking up at someone in envy, comparing yourself in regard to spirituality is always pride. So the Pharisee thanks God he is not like the tax collector. That's pride. But notice, the tax collector does not ask God for forgiveness because he is not like the Pharisee. He does not ask God for forgiveness because he is not like the Pharisee. That would have been pride too in the form of envy or what have you. Um, Paul said, follow me and follow my example. So there's this sense where we compare ourselves to perhaps a spiritual leader, a mentor, a someone who has discipled us or, or what have you, and we want to be like them, but not in this form of envy. Like, oh, if I could only be like him, then I would be where I want to be. You know, it's not about envy. So in a sense... I want to say, follow me as I follow Christ. But in another sense, I say, don't want to be like me. Don't want that. And also, I say, don't settle for I'm good just as I am. Which is what the world says to us. You're good just as you are. Actually, it's kind of strange that uh, all the TV shows and all the movies say you are good just as you are. But all the commercials say you would be if you had this one more thing, right? That's how the media goes. But as you are in yourself, no matter how many morality laps you run around the tax collector, in yourself, you are no closer to God than He is. You're no closer. You will no more get to God by trying to be good than a little boy can get to Mars Riding the rocket that he builds out of Play-Doh. In fact, the Bible would say, put your money on the Play-Doh. doesn't really say that. It tells you not to gamble. But you know what I mean. The Pharisee, this is another interesting thing. I think there's a lesson here. We're not going to spend any time on it. But the Pharisee, he takes a glance at God and he prays long. Well, in comparison. And the tax collector, he takes a deep look at God and he prays quite short. God is holy. He is not. What in the world can he do about it? Not a thing. Not a thing in himself. And so God must be merciful to him. God must mercifully intervene or the tax collector is a dead man. Eternally dead. And so he cries out to God that God would be merciful to him, a sinner. Does the prayer, I just want to touch on this quickly or try to touch on it quickly. Does the prayer save the tax collector? What condemned, let's answer that question with a question. What condemned the Pharisee? His self-centered, self-righteous trust. 
And so vice versa, it's the same for the tax collector. He is not saved by his prayer, but by the mercy of the God in whom he trusts. And I don't mean to disparage the sinner's prayer, but I think sometimes, actually a lot of times, in our type churches, the sinner's prayer is emphasized too strongly. And even on the individual level, we might say to someone, as I have done in the past, let me lead you in this prayer, follow me, repeat these words kind of thing. But I don't think that we need to do that. Because I believe that you won't be able to keep down the prayer of the heart whose trust is in God. If an individual can articulate words, not everybody can, could be in such a state on a deathbed where no more words can come, or there are some people just physically incapacitated from getting speech out, intelligible speech, but where the words can be articulated, they will be. If the heart trusts in God, I think I brought this up recently, it would be like Peter walking on the water, beginning to sink, and then not saying a word. Well, if you believe Jesus was going to save you, why would you not cry out, Lord, save me? Which is exactly what he did. Because his heart believed his rescuer was Christ. So, I don't mean to disparage the sinner's prayer but that becomes too much of our emphasis. It's not prayer that saves. We trust in the God of mercy. By faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, we are saved. But the prayer will come. Prayer will come. I want you to hear the words of Christ in verse 14. I want you to hear the words, and if your heart, your sinful heart is clinging to Jesus, I want you to rejoice. It made me really happy just half hour ago or whenever it was when we were singing before the throne of God. Uh, I've said this before too. I'm just very thankful for Charity Bancroft. She's the author of that hymn. One of the greatest. And when I'm shaking hands and hugging necks and stuff when I get to glory, I'm going to look her up because what a tremendous song. One with himself, I cannot die. I cannot die. My life is hid with Christ in God. So Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I think I frequently enough draw your attention to these little words Lego humin that Jesus says at the first, which is translated, I tell you. Those three little words in English are very easy for us to skip over. And whenever I've told you about them before, Jesus is saying, pay attention. I am giving you something critical for your life and you must take this to heart. But there's something else in this too. He is saying to us, I give you my word. I am bound to this. This can no more not be than I cannot not be. Meaning it's true. This is true. Listen. My name is on this. And He is saying, if this is you, 
you are justified. You are right before God. You are right with God. You are right in God. If this is you, if this is you, if you know that you are a sinner, absolutely lost and damned, unless Jesus Christ in the mercy of God intervenes. If you cry out in faith, God be merciful to me, a sinner, you are saved, you are justified, the God of the holy court has declared you innocent, righteous in His Son. Jesus' name is on it. That's what He means when He says, I tell you, God loves the humble cry and He never fails to answer it. Let's look at the next few verses. Verse 15 again. Now they were bringing even infants to Him that He might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. For whatever reason, the disciples are being merciless here and just mean. Today, society more idolizes children than would say, keep them away. But for whatever reason, the disciples are being merciless here. And it's easy to get down on these guys, but you have to realize too also how humble they are because they're the ones who are passing down the story of how they look like oafs. And you you have to be thankful too for their spiritual oafishness because it's next to this mercilessness, not a word, I don't think, but anyway, um, that Christ's mercy shines so gloriously, right? So brightly. So they're, they're dumb, and Jesus looks brilliant next to them and really, truly helps us to understand something important and something wonderful. So Jesus called them to him, which I think them is referring to the children. He called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, note those words again, same thing as what I was saying before, how wonderful those words are. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You must receive the kingdom of God like a child or you will not enter. What do these words of Jesus not mean? Did you ever convince a sibling that they were adopted and reduce them to quivering worries and tears? If you did, it's very mean. I only did it a couple times. Jesus is not commending childlike gullibility. Okay? Number one. And um, number two... <laughs> Joel, a couple days ago, he said that when he grows up, he wants to be a T-Rex. And Chewie is going to be a monkey. And if you don't know, Chewie's our dog. Jesus is not commending to us childlike ignorance. Not gullibility and not ignorance. And another little story about Joel. Just last night, he said, we're all together in the living room, and he said that Cherie was 69 years old, and I am 67 years old, and 
Leah is 60 chicken noodles old, and Brian is 18. And they didn't talk about Marsha. But Jesus is not commending childlike ignorance or gullibility. He is commending to us childlike humility. Humility, that humble faith. Now, maybe you, especially maybe our teachers, maybe now and again you come across a child who is just persistently proud and vain, but the, the younger they are, I think the rarer that's going to be. And I've never come across myself a child that doesn't believe that they are a sinner when you tell them so. They believe it. They can see it. I do things wrong. And they, they're very quick to believe that there is a God. It makes sense. How can there not be? I'm alive. There has to be someone in charge, someone who made all of this. They have that childlike humility. They're ready to believe the obvious and not trying to save face and be all proud and vain like we so quickly morph to become. But this is how we must come to Jesus. With that humble faith. Knowing we are needy. That what, Je- that what Jesus has, He will give. That what Jesus has is enough for us. It is perfect for us. Christ is all we need. And not too proud to ask. That's childlike humility. If you will enter the kingdom of God as a citizen and heir, you must enter like a child. Like the tax collector who knows that he is a sinner condemned before God. Unless God has mercy. Now as we come to a close, I mentioned the tax collector. I want to come back to his prayer just for a brief moment. Our translation says that he prays, if you look back down at it quickly, God, and here's the verb, here's the thing that he wants God to do. It's one word in the original. God, be merciful. Be merciful. Now, that translation hits the target. But it's not dead on center. It's not a bullseye. That This verb is used Well, the noun form of this word is used several places in the New Testament. But as a verb, action, it's only used in one other place in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, in that verse that says, Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to, here's the verb, same verb as what the tax collector prayed God would do for him. To make, Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Make propitiation. That is, offer the sacrifice of atonement that will appease the wrath of God that is justly against sin and sinners both. The sacrifice that appeases God. That's what it means to make propitiation. Jesus became the faithful and merciful high priest to do that. So here's the tax collector. He's in the temple. What happens in the temple? There was a question asked this morning in Sunday school about temples and, and Ray brought up temples and synagogues as like, uh, the synagogues were local houses of worship and religious instruction and so on. But sacrifices only happened in one of those places. It happened at the temple in Jerusalem. So here's the tax collector in the temple where there are sacrifices being offered. And what is he asking God to do? 
He wants that one sacrifice offered that will be enough to atone even for His sin. He wants that sacrifice offered that will be enough to appease the wrath of God even against Him, against His wretched heart and His filthy, cheating hands. That one sacrifice that's enough. How can it be? How can there be a sacrifice enough to forgive us of all of our sin? What can be offered that would be valuable and worthy and without blemish enough that would take our sin away? It can't be a what? An animal. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It must be a man. You see our dilemma? God cannot just feel merciful. He cannot just feel compassion and all be well for us. He must do something. There must be justice. God must do justly. And so, if there's going to be something that will answer the justice of God and appease His divine righteous anger against sin and sinners, God must do another thing. You can't just feel mercy to counter or to answer justice. God must do something. So we're talking about a who. Not a what to stand in our place to be offered as our substitute, a who. And of course, as Hebrews tells us, it's Jesus. The very man, God-man, telling this story is going to offer the sacrifice that's enough for the tax collector and all the tax collectors. For the prostitute sinner and all of those who have prostituted themselves to the world. Jesus makes the sacrifice. He makes the offering. And He is the offering that He makes. Laid down on the altar in your place and in my place. That justice may be done and that there may be full, free mercy enough for all the sinners who will come to God by faith in Jesus, who want to be delivered from their sin unto God and who trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. That's what Jesus did. That's why Jesus came. So let's examine our hearts and not compare ourselves to others to figure out if we're righteous or not, but compare ourselves to the holy God and cry out from the heart, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't mean to disparage the sinner's prayer again. I'll ask you, have you prayed it? Have you cried out to God? God be merciful to me, a sinner. And you do not need to be justified more than one time. Once God has declared you righteous in His Son, you are righteous in His Son forever. Your sin is forgiven, past, present, future, and you have eternal life. But, but, do you still pray the prayer? Do you still cry out to God for mercy? Do you still declare to Him that your hope is in Jesus Christ alone? You know, well, let me just say, I hope that you do. I hope that you realize it's not to be saved all over again. But knowing your sin, your ongoing sin, and yet having that ongoing faith in Jesus Christ, 
you can't keep down the prayer of faith in Christ for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for providing all that we needed to be saved in Jesus, your son. Lord, we could not lift a finger to save ourselves. No effort would do. Being dead in sin, not only could we not make the effort, but we didn't want to make any effort. Instead, we, all of us, all humanity, were guilty of turning against the Savior that you provided and putting him to death. But no man took his life from him. Jesus laid it down freely of his own accord. And he took it back up again with the authority that you gave him. He is risen so that now we come to you through the crucified and living Jesus Christ to be saved. And I pray, Father, that every single person here would have that childlike trust clinging to Jesus and Jesus alone. And not only us, Lord, but we long to see others, our family, our loved ones, our neighbors, all of our community, turning to Christ. And we pray that you would do a powerful work to awaken the souls of the dead to their need for Jesus and Jesus' sufficiency to save them. And I pray, Father, that you would use us in the world around us to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. May we do so boldly and without a trace of pride, with love, help us to proclaim the truth that others might hear and might come to Christ to be saved. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.